0: Turn with me to John chapter 21. John 21. I thought about whether to preach something different for this week, but we kind of just built a little momentum with the Love Your Church series in John 21. And I figured that's probably as good a topic as any to stay with as we celebrate being able to finally meet together after so many weeks apart now. One of the joys of being a pastor is hearing the stories of fellow shepherds and the the joys and the triumphs that they enjoy who have congregations who are growing and, and following the Lord and enjoying His blessing. One friend shared with me recently that when he arrived at his church, they had no doctrinal statement. They were bleeding members. Arguments abounded in the church. But after seven years, the church is well taught. Their leadership is unified. They're growing in love for Christ and for one another At Shepherds Conference this year, as I normally get to do, I met with several men who were in dire or difficult circumstances in their ministry. That seems to be something the Lord has brought into my life. One older man shared with me that he thought maybe his best ministry was behind him, that he was beyond really being useful for the Lord, and yet by providential circumstances has planted a church that is growing faster than they they know what to do with. A youth pastor shared with me his joy at having been through a difficult time in this church and weathered that time, but he was quite amazing to me. He's been faithful as a youth pastor in the same church for 22 years. And now seeing his little junior high students getting married and having kids and and enjoying that longevity of ministry. Men have shared with me how their churches give so faithfully and are abundantly over-the-top generous, not only with the church, but with their families and In gratitude for the work of the ministry and the preached word, many, many other stories I've had the privilege of hearing about the blessing of ministry, the maturing of people in love for Christ and for one another. And these are all men, and I would count myself among them, who would echo the great statement of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.20, you are our glory and joy. And that's how we feel. On the other hand, the parking lots of countless churches are blackened with the tire marks of pastors making a quick and final exit, an exit filled with pain and anguish. U-Haul centers have been the scene of countless pastors and their wives numbly getting ready to move because the pain in their ministry became unbearable or because every effort to shepherd was met with resistance and difficulty and turmoil. I know men who have been literally cursed out by their own elders. Men who have been fired with no severance pay, no notice, and no reason given. I've known men who have met walls of resistance at every turn and then blamed when the church wasn't progressing. I know one man who had members stand up in the middle of a sermon and try to stop him from preaching. Men who have been run out of their own churches for preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. I spoke this year with a godly and seasoned pastor of several decades who is yet overwhelmed by spiritual depression to the point where he almost couldn't function. And while the first group of men I described echo Paul's joy that their church is their glory and joy, this second category of men I've described with echo Paul's statement to the Galatian church when Paul said, What then has become of your blessedness? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, where's the former love that I had when I first came to you? Where's the respect? Where's the honor that you once gave me? The church at Thessalonica loved their shepherds and were a healthy, vital church, while the Galatian church resented their shepherds and were an unhealthy, off-track, unhappy church. In fact, Paul characterized the Galatian church in Galatians 5.15 as those who bite and devour one another. And so there is absolutely no doubt at all that there is a vital connection to the health and joy and effectiveness of a church and how the members relate to the shepherds. Those two have to be connected. And that's our theme this morning as we're continuing our series in John 21, Love Your Church. Last week, we gave the reason to love your church for the beloved sheep. Today, our reason is for the faithful shepherds. Now, there's always the potential for the inevitable question, Why is it a good idea for shepherds to preach about shepherds? Well, I'll give you four reasons. The first one is the most obvious because there's no one else doing it. So that's the easy one. The second reason is it's good for the church to hear spiritual truth on every topic. It's good for us. The third reason is that statistically, almost all of you will have other shepherds in your lifetime, and I at least owe it to them to help train you. And finally, and this is really the main reason and my focus for today, is that the Christian who loves their faithful shepherds tends to be happy, joyful, content, and productive in the church. Those two go together. And in our text this morning, John 21, 15 through 19, the issue of shepherding is going to be right at the center of this little scene. And so before I get to kind of our application about the faithful shepherds, we need to understand what's happening here in the text for a few minutes. And after we do that, what I'd like to do is give you five reasons that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members, that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members. And just in case I haven't proven it to you after five reasons, then I'm going to give you one killer last reason from one verse alone, one verse that will prove that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members. But first, let's understand what's happening here in John 21, beginning in verse 15. This is, as you recall, after the resurrection of Christ. Jesus has met seven of his disciples, including Peter, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's given them this miraculous catch of fish. He's fed them breakfast. And now he's going to have a conversation with Peter. Verse 20 says that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, meaning there were a distant, there was a distance between them, so it seems that Jesus and Peter maybe walked off a ways to have a private conversation. And this is an all-important conversation, and if I had time to go into this, the future history of the church of Jesus Christ hinges on this conversation. We have to keep something in mind. Peter and Jesus have not yet resolved something. There's something between them. And what is it that's between them? The fact that Peter has denied Christ three times. And that has never been resolved. You know how it is when that cloud is kind of hanging over you and you have that pit in your stomach because there's something between you and someone you love? Jesus didn't have the pit in his stomach. Peter was about to. This is hanging in the air. And this was an important conversation because there's questions about what role could Peter possibly play in the upcoming church of Jesus Christ in the spreading of the gospel. How could one who had denied Christ publicly three times lead the charge? How could he do that? So let's see how Jesus resolves this. John 21 verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus calls aside Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, that's what he calls him. This is exactly, by the way, what Jesus called Peter the very first time they met. In John chapter 1, when Jesus commissioned Peter for the ministry of representing Christ, in John 1, we see Andrew bringing, Andrew is Peter's brother, bringing Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock, the, the name of, of solidity and steadfastness and strength. But now, Jesus reverts back to Peter's full given name, Simon, son of John, Simon Johnson. And he does this as a rebuke. And if you're a parent, you understand this because you do the same thing. When little Bobby disobeys, he becomes Robert Jonathan Smith, right? He goes back. And in fact, in several other places in the gospel, Jesus calls Peter Simon when he's correcting him. Matthew 17, Mark 14, Luke 22. But Jesus has asked a question, and it's an odd question. He says, do you love me more than these? Now, what's our question? Well, these what? Is Jesus referring to Peter's boat that's right over here and maybe to all the fishing paraphernalia and the 153 fish that they just caught, which is which was a small fortune? The thought is that perhaps Peter had given up on the ministry and he was returning to his previous lifestyle. That is often preached. There's nothing in the text that says that, though. Whatsoever. Remember, we saw last time that this little fishing excursion of verses 1 through 14 was spontaneous and probably because they just wanted breakfast. Doesn't demonstrate at all that Peter had given up on the ministry. These what? Much better option. Do you love me more than these other men? These other six guys and the others that weren't there. Now, why would he ask this? It's kind of a trick question, isn't it? This is like, like, ladies, don't ever ask your husbands, do I look good in this dress? That, that's a terrible question because we don't know what to say sometimes. This is almost a trick question. Do you love me more than these? Because is there a right answer to this? If Peter says, no, I actually don't, that's a bad answer. If he says, yes, I actually do, then that's an arrogant answer. Why would he ask him this? Well, this harkens back to a time in John 13, When Peter said, basically, I do love you more than these, what did he say? He said, I will lay down my life for you. He didn't say we will. He said, I'll do it. He said, I'll do it. And how did Jesus answer? How did Jesus reply when Peter essentially said he loved Jesus more than anyone? Jesus answered in John 13, 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. No, you won't love me more than the others. In fact, you'll love me less. Now, at this moment, whatever future service that Peter might render the Christ, requiring him to give up his life, two things had to happen. First, he needed to be forgiven by Christ and he needed to be reinstated by Christ Peter was on the shelf in ministry and and many have said that that he was running away from the ministry. No, he wasn't running away. He wasn't the one who put himself on the shelf by running. He put himself on the shelf by sinning and he disqualified himself and did so badly. And so he's disqualified at this moment. He's denied Christ 3 times and now he would be required to declare his love for Christ 3 times. Now you know this here, it's a little bit uncomfortable for Peter. But in the ancient Near East, it was a common custom to reiterate a solemn obligation or a vow or a promise three times, and it gave it seriousness. And in fact, also, if someone thought you were lying to them and they asked you a question, if they asked you the third time, it meant that they thought maybe you weren't being fully honest. Did you know this in verse 17? It doesn't say he said to him a third time. He said to him the third time, meaning I don't trust you yet, Peter. You're not where I need you to be. But then on the flip side of the bad news, there's good news. Did you notice how Peter replies? He didn't say no. He didn't say yes, I love you more. There's a new humility and brokenness in Peter. He never says, yes, Lord, I love you more than these men do. He simply says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. There's no more brash claims. There's no more... Being more than others, no more elevating himself, no more being number one. He throws himself on the mercy of the sovereign knowledge of Christ. Christ knowing the state of Peter's heart. And how did Peter respond to this? It says in verse 17, he was grieved. So, word that means he was distressed, he was saddened, he was cut. Now at this point, I have to draw your attention to something here in the text because you probably have heard this before. A lot of attention has been drawn to the fact that John uses two different Greek words for love here in this passage. The first two times Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? John's gospel records this as agapao. Others have defined this as the highest form of love that is seen as divine love. But in Peter's response, he always says, yes, Lord, you know that I love phileo. That is a lesser form of love or it's said to be at least lesser form than agapao. It's said to represent human love, not divine love. And then in his third question, Jesus then reverts to phileo and said by some that he's challenging whether or not Peter can even love him to that lower, lesser human level. Do you love me even at that level? And I have to admit, that preaches really well. It really does, but it's irrelevant. Except for one reason, which I'll give you in just a moment. There are clearly different shades of meaning but all throughout John's gospel, those two verbs for love are used interchangeably. And for example, Jesus said in John 3.19 that people loved Agapa'o, the highest form of divine love, right? People loved the darkness. That's not divine love. And Jesus said in John 5.20 that the Father loves the Son, but he uses phileo. That's not merely human love. So the two terms can be used interchangeably. We should also point out that there are variations in other wording in the section that Jesus uses to give Peter his command, for example, feed my lambs. That's one particular word that means to feed or to herd or to tend. Tend my sheep. That's a different word, which means to shepherd. Then he says, feed my sheep, going back to the same word, but now using sheep, not lambs. And theologians have tried to chart a pattern here. Actually, mathematically, you cannot find a pattern to that because the variation is such that you can't make one. There's no discernible pattern. But this is precisely, and here's the reason for the variation, how the Holy Spirit inspired the text. It is to get our attention. The variety of wording tells us to pay attention, give heed, take notice. Just like I just said, pay attention, give heed, take notice. Over and over again, you hear the same thing from different wording. Look, Jesus is emphasizing to Peter, if you really love me, if you really love me, you will feed my people. You'll feed the flock of God. You will nourish them. You will cherish them. You cannot be the hero of your own story anymore. You can't be the center of things. This cannot be about you anymore. Yeah, it was kind of cute that you got out of the boat and walked on water. Nobody else did that. It wasn't so cute when you started sinking. Yeah, it was kind of cute that you thought that maybe you would stop me from being crucified. Remember what I called you? Oh, yeah, Satan. That has to be done. You need to grow up. You must fully give yourself to my work, and it cannot be about you. By the way, in case there's any doubt that Jesus is shredding Peter right here in rebuke and correction in order to reinstate him in the gospel ministry, remember where they are literally standing. Where are they standing? There's only two times in all of the New Testament that a background element called a charcoal fire is mentioned. Only two times. The first time is in the courtyard of Annas, the high priest emeritus, around which Peter denied Christ three times. And the second time is right here at this very scene, chapter 21, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. And around a charcoal fire, Jesus insists on a triple affirmation of Peter's love. And I would imagine that for the rest of his life, the sight of a charcoal fire would both haunt and comfort Peter because it was the place of his failure and it was the place of his forgiveness. And now Jesus tells Peter that his love and devotion for Christ and the ministry of the gospel will come at a price. In verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. You catch that metaphor? You used to do things the way you thought they ought to be done. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What is Jesus telling him? Some have said, well, he's hinting that Peter may be crucified at the end of his life. There's no hint here. The phrase, stretch out your hands, was a commonly known phrase to speak of crucifixion. In fact, there are at least five ancient authors around the time of Christ that have recorded the exact phrase, stretch out your hands, to mean being crucified. So it may as well say, when you're old, you're going to be crucified, just like I was. And verse 19 gives us the direct explanation. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In fact, shortly before his death, Peter wrote these beautiful words, which we read this morning, which faithful shepherds in the church cling to every week. First Peter 5, 1 and 2, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, right here, embedded in the fabric of this text, just woven in into this difficult but necessary exchange between Jesus and Peter. Peter, whom Jesus had now called to be a a faithful shepherd to, to the church of Christ. Here, now we find five reasons that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members. Or we might even call this reasons to love your shepherds as God has commanded. Here's our first reason. They have been called by God. They have been called by God. Peter was first called by the Son of God in John chapter 1. He was told in Luke 5 that he would become a fisher of men to be a minister of the gospel. And here, even in the midst of this rebuke, Peter is commissioned three times over to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And in fact, the shepherds of Christ's church are the very second gift. That Christ gave to his church the first gift was the Holy Spirit sent on the day of Pentecost and the immediate second gift was the shepherds on the day of Pentecost the day that the Holy Spirit comes to the church who do we hear preaching the very first Christian sermon we hear Peter the Apostle Paul affirmed that the shepherds of the church are the gift of the Son of God after his ascension into heaven Ephesians 4 8 says, When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. What gifts? Just a few verses later, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. He has given gifts of shepherds. And listen, this dedication to the shepherding of God's people, this isn't a career choice your senior year in high school and you have career day, you don't go up to the booth that says be a pastor because nobody wants a 19-year-old pastor. It's not a decision about personal fulfillment, but rather whether it's a voluntary or a volunteer or a financially supported shepherding, it is a calling. It is a calling. It's something beyond words. It's something that is very personal between a man and his God. It's beyond human definition. I've been pastoring for couple of decades now, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how to define the calling. The shepherds of Christ's church are not employees of the church. They don't work for the church. They serve God for the sake of the church and for their benefit. But they work for the Lord. Now, how does that knowledge contribute to your love for the church? Well, very simply... It aligns your heart to properly see that Christ's love for the church includes the fact that he gave gifts. And those gifts are men. They're men to shepherd your heart and your soul and your lives. There's a second reason that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members they have been confirmed by the saints. They've been confirmed by the saints. A shepherd is not to be self-appointed any more than a person would say, I deem myself qualified to fly a 747. Find me one. No, you have to find what? Other people who know how to fly 747s to say, okay, now you're ready. You don't self-qualify. What about Peter? Has he self-qualified? No, he's still the uncontested leader among the leaders. They clearly follow him and recognize him. But until Jesus has now recommissioned him, all he was really qualified to do was to say, let's go fishing. That's about it. And now with the calling of Christ and the implicit approval of other qualified men, Peter now resumes his place as a leader among leaders, a place he would hold throughout his ministry. There are really three parts to this confirmation by the saints qualification by other qualified shepherds how does this work Uh, just to give you a little insight three parts to this first part is training training paul told timothy who was leading the church at ephesus in first timothy 4 6 that timothy had been quote trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed if you got on a plane and you looked into the cockpit and you saw the pilot reading the book piloting for dummies you would feel uncomfortable with that right You need people who are trained. The second part, testing. Testing. At the end of Romans, Paul puts a side note in Romans 16.10. He says, Greet Apelles who is approved in Christ. That's not just a little side note. That is a note of approval to gospel ministry. This word approved specifically means approval after testing. He's asserting to the church at Rome that Apelles is now to be one of their qualified shepherds. And the third part of the confirmation is intertwined with that, training, testing, and approval. When Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Same word used of Apelles, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And how is he approved, or rather, why is he approved? Because he is rightly handling the word of truth. And sadly, we've all sat under men at one time or another that you know haven't studied anything, don't know anything, they're not trained, they're not tested, they're not approved. But when the man is trained, when he is tested, when he is approved, the end result is something we often call ordination. It's from the Latin word ordinatio, which means to set in order, to put in place. What's being set in order? What's being set in order is a man who's told, your life is now about the church. That's what you do. Even Paul, the apostle, called by Jesus Christ himself. You would think that his experience on the road to Damascus, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, that that would be his ordination. That wasn't. Did you know that? He submitted to the ordination of the church. He was approved by the saints. He was approved by the elders of the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. The great apostle Paul submitted to the elders of the church to send him out as a missionary. Now, why is the approval of shepherds important? Well, it's important to you because it gives you an added layer of respect and love for your shepherds, which only benefits you. And what it does is it reminds you of the seriousness and the gravity, what it means for a man to be ordained to the most important work on planet Earth. I know men who have walked away from medical practices, from dental practices. I, I know men who have walked away from great wealth Many have walked away from prestige and from honor to go to seminary and to just sit in the classroom with a bunch of other guys to give up their lives because of the gravity and the seriousness of the work. And speaking of gravity and seriousness, the third reason that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members, they've been chastised by God. They've been chastised by God. Peter had been chastised by Jesus Christ. He was grieved. He was cut. He was humbled severely. And we saw his attitude change from, I love you more than these, as he asserted back in John 13, to simply, you know that I love you. You know what is in the heart of God. There's something that has to be changed in a man, both before and during his ministry, to make him fit for the gospel ministry. There must be a sense of smallness. There must be a sense of insignificance. There must be a sense of replaceability. And I'll tell you, spiritual pride is Satan's great tool to hamper the ministry of a shepherd. An arrogant shepherd is useless to the body of Christ. They're absolutely useless. And so the most blessed shepherds are the ones God chooses to afflict, to hurt, to grieve, And to make them more pliable and useful in the master's hands. One of my heroes of the faith is a man you've probably never heard of. His name is Mel Sumrall. He's in his 90s now. But he was a successful engineer in the steel industry. Before he was 40 years old, he was in the top management of a steel plant with nearly 10,000 employees. And he was on his way and being groomed to be the president of the company. He was a believer in Christ, but he wasn't really strong in the Lord. He was married with four children and then they had a delightful fifth little baby named Pamela. And at just a few months of age, one day Pamela seemed to be feeling badly. They took her to a 10.30 a.m. doctor's appointment and by mid-afternoon, Pamela was dead. And an autopsy revealed that a very rare virus had gone in and basically eaten her heart. Well, Mel went into a deep depression. The only way he could sleep was to lay on the floor underneath his wife's piano while she played until he was able to fall asleep he could hardly work he could hardly function and he began to be discipled in his grief by a man in his church and now he didn't care about the steel business at all and over the course of the next couple of years of being discipled and and, and growing in the Lord it became clear to Mel that all he cared about now was proclaiming the gospel of Christ proclaiming the love of God proclaiming the sovereignty of God to those in need of salvation and serving the Lord in the local church. And so, at the age of 48, he sold his house, gave away most of his belongings, moved his family, he answered God's call and went to seminary for four years and with the endorsement of his mentors, he planted a church at the age of 52. And he did it with 12 people. Not just 12 ordinary people, 12 college students. Now, you know what you don't have when you plant a church with 12 college students? Money. And so, he's... Trusting the Lord during this time, he discipled the young man and took him under his wing. Mel took on the role of senior pastor to this little bitty church. The gifted younger man began to preach in the church and and discovering this great gift. Those 12 people became a 100, eventually became many thousands. And over four decades later, the younger man, Tommy Nelson, continues to preach faithfully because of the faithful shepherding of Mel Sumrall, who's still discipling men today. Both Tommy and Mel were my pastors at Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, where Sylvia and I first began our real spiritual growth together very early in our marriage. This is a church that has had a worldwide impact for the gospel in a couple of countries around the world now. But Mel had to be broken first. Pamela had to go home so that Mel would be ready for the ministry, had to be made pliable Your shepherds at Grace Bible Church have all been through the life-altering discipline of the Lord, through suffering, through agony. It's helped make them who they are. You might not know all their stories. I do. God has sovereignly ordained these times of excruciating pain in their lives to make them the men that they are today, to make them and mold them into useful, tender men of God. And when you see your shepherds in this light, knowing that God has sifted them and hammered them and inflicted pain on them and afflicted them with agony, it should engender love and respect and delight that these are the men that God has placed over you to be fathers to you, to be spiritual dads. But the shepherds of the church have a definite focus, a definite commission from God, which is our next reason to help us understand The fourth reason that loving your shepherds translates into joyful members, they have been charged by God. They have been charged by God. There there is a mission. Three times, Jesus commanded Peter, feed my people, feed my people, feed my people. And what are we to feed them? Well, the Apostle Paul gave his very famous injunction, his charge to the shepherds of the church. In 2 Timothy 4, he said, preach the word. There is no other food That, by the way, is right after explaining in 2 Timothy 3.16, very familiar to you. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Listen, that verse is a bombshell about the Bible and about what we're to do with it. First of all, it, it elevates Scripture, the inspiration. All Scripture is theopneustos, God breathed, breathed out by God. And therefore, we elevate it as the sole authority of righteousness and godliness. But the second part of the verse is the command to expository preaching. What do I mean? We are to explain the Word of God. That's teaching. We are to point out wrong with the Word of God. That's reproof. We're to point out what is right with the Word of God. That's correction. And we're to expect to see you grow more and more in Christ. That's training in righteousness. It is a command to expository preaching. That is how the church is shepherded. This is what Paul reminded the church at Thessalonica when he told them in First Thessalonians two eleven and 12, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now you might say, I don't need to love a shepherd in order to be instructed by him. I'll give you a short answer and a long answer to that. What what does loving the faithful shepherds have to do with being instructed by the shepherds? The, the, The short answer is, how do you do listening to somebody you don't like? We all know instinctively that's very difficult to do. But here's the longer answer. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 11, Moses gives the formula for living a faithful and pleasing life before the Lord, walking in faithfulness to Him, and it's centered on the Word of God. It's centered on the Word. And here's the formula. It's just six words. Reading, hearing, learning, fearing, obeying, and living. I'll repeat that for you, but you can just look it up in Deuteronomy 31, reading, hearing, learning, fearing, obeying, and living. In other words, Israel was to hear the reading of God's word so that they would hear it and learn it so as to fear God, so as to obey God, so as to live in the blessing of God. And here's the connection between loving your shepherds and being instructed by the shepherds. If you fail to love the shepherds, if you grow in your resentment and difficulty toward them, if you have a who-do-you-think-you-are attitude, your spiritual growth will be stunted because all of a sudden, every time your shepherds open their mouths, you fail to hear. And if you fail to hear, you'll fail to learn. If you fail to learn, you'll you'll fail to fear. Then you won't obey and you won't live a righteous life. You will have pulled the rug out from under your own spiritual growth. The church member who has grown indifferent, who has unrealistic expectations, is constantly evaluating, critiquing the shepherds, has shut off his own spiritual growth under those men. But if, if you love them, not because they're perfect, but as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, because of their work. 1 Thessalonians 5 also says, if you respect them, if you esteem them, so love and respect and esteem, now the, the riches of the, work of the word are opened up to you because now the preached word the counseled word the discipled word enters into your heart from men you know love you and that you love and now the word of god does its work in fact it does what jeremiah one says it's supposed to do the word of god is to pluck up selfish desires is to break down false beliefs is to destroy sinful ways it's to overthrow idols of the heart it's to build Christlikeness into your life and it is to plant the seeds of holiness and righteousness into everything that you do. And now the word of God is working. And I gotta tell you, we've experienced this at Grace Bible Church. There is no greater joy in the Christian life than to team up with shepherds and to love them and to cherish them such that they pour into your lives to see you fulfill Philippians 1.27, to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as shepherds fulfill their charge, your love and affection for them is heightened. And as you express your love and affection, that spurs shepherds on. It motivates their labors forward. And this love is now fuel for us as shepherds, especially in light of the last reason. Loving your shepherds translates into joyful members because they're called by God, they're confirmed by the saints, they're chastised by God, they're charged by God. One more reason. They have been consumed by God. They've been consumed by God. Peter has been promised by God that he will suffer tremendously for the sake of Christ. It occurs to me that Peter lived for 30 years knowing that the end of his life would be on a cross. He knew the end, I I think most of us don't want to know that. He had that knowledge. He fully knew that one day he would be crucified. Each of you has been given one life and one life only. And for the shepherds of the church, particularly those that 1 Timothy 5 identifies as those who work hard at preaching and teaching as a complete lifestyle, God has spent that life. God has consumed that life. And it's a life fraught with peril and at times filled with pain. From both inside and outside the church, the minister of the gospel doesn't live where he wants. He lives where the Lord would have him minister. The minister of the gospel has laid aside his gifts, laid aside his desires, laid aside his hopes, laid aside his dreams to be consumed by Christ in his church. His personal goals and dreams are crushed. They're laid aside, not for a time, but for life. And the ministry of the gospel endures the scorn and the ridicule of the world, and worse, at times, the scorn of his own flock. Now, to be certain, the ministry of the gospel is the greatest privilege on earth. I mean, 1 Timothy 3 says it's a fine work to be concerned with the things of heaven every week is tremendous. It's, it's uplifting, I get to do every single week what God has in my heart made my very favorite thing. He took away my other dreams and gave me a new one and that is to study the Word. I mean, I spend more time with Peter, James, and John than I do with you. I know these men. I know Abraham. I know Isaac. I know Jacob. They're friends, as it were. To study the Word of God so many hours each week is is a joy for my soul and then I get a bonus and that is I get to explain it to you. But to be a shepherd of the church is to be consumed by God. It is to be spent by God. It is to be used up for God. In fact, Paul told the Galatians to stop being troublemakers. And he gave them a reason. He said in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He had literal scars on his body for his suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, most shepherds don't have physical scars on their bodies for being in the gospel ministry, but all of us have emotional and and spiritual scars. All have laid down their lives voluntarily for the sake of obeying Christ's call to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, I said earlier that just in case you don't believe these five reasons that loving your shepherds translates to joyful church members, I said I'd give you one verse That makes the case all by itself. Here it is. Very familiar to you. Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. By the way, not just giving an account of themselves to God, giving an account of you to God. How did so-and-so do as a church member? "Ah, He kind of did okay. How did so-and-so do? Oh, he was great. So there's an accounting that happens. But, but the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I used to think that was sort of metaphorical, that that was hyperbola. That was an exaggeration. I've been in elders meetings where we hear a report of great sin and rebellion in the church. And you know what I've heard men do? I've heard elders groan. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. Here it is. This is the whole proof. For that would be of no advantage to you. Did you hear that? To act towards shepherds, and it's stated in a negative way here, to act towards shepherds in a way that makes them groan, either through disobedience or lack of love, it's of no advantage to you. The Greek word for advantage means no special benefit. No special benefit. Now, let's state this in the positive. By doing the opposite, there is special benefit. There is advantage. There is profit to you. And so when the church loves their shepherds, they're loving the church, the bride of Christ. And when they love the bride of Christ, they are loving Christ. What's the relationship with Christ in the church? Charles Spurgeon said the elect church is the favorite of heaven, the treasure of Christ, the crown of his head, the bracelet of his arm and the breastplate of his heart. This is true. Christ adores his church. He cherishes his church These are the people that He would offer Himself for to be willingly arrested and reviled and humiliated and tortured and ultimately crucified. And now, having made full satisfaction of the wrath of God against sin, Jesus was raised from the dead such that all who believe on Him and follow Him will be resurrected as well. He has ascended into heaven and even now is seated at the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for every person who has ever trusted in Christ, such that not one, not one of your sins will ever be counted against you ever again. It's for his people that he said he's preparing a place. It's for his people that he's anticipating with great eagerness his own return to the earth and it's for his people that he's promised a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem in the eternal heavenly kingdom. And even now, at this very moment, at this very moment, he's in the process of using his church to bring more kingdom citizens to faith and informing Christ likeness in the church. And the one way he chose to do this was through the preaching of the word through faithful shepherds. That's how he brings it about. And faithful shepherds echo the yearning of the Apostle Paul when he told the wayward Galatian church, my little children, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the cry of the shepherd. Listen, I'm blessed to be a shepherd in a church that loves her shepherds. And after shepherding at some level for 35 years now, I've noticed a correlation. The correlation is this, the one The ones who seem to love the shepherds most are also joyful in Christ, excited to grow in Christ-likeness and eager to hear the word at every turn. It's an undeniable correlation. And why is this? Well, it's very simple. Because love for human shepherds is merely an outworking of love for the heavenly shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this text which is so very clear for us. How Peter is humbled, it reminds us, Lord, that you have crushed and humbled every faithful shepherd. Peter being the the first example. Lord, we would ask you now to nail these truths deeply into our hearts. Help those at Grace Bible Church to be a healthy church. Lord, help us to be healthy in that we love our shepherds and the shepherds love to shepherd the sheep such that we would honor and glorify the head of the church, that we would please him, that we would receive a good report, that we would receive the commendation rather than the condemnation of the head of the church. Let us be faithful, Lord, to do what you have commanded, such that we would see the smile of heaven upon us, receive the stamp of approval, because we followed the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the King of kings and Lord of all lords. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.